glad each of you are here today. Let's see if I can get this uh, bad boy turned on. I think we're hot. Awesome. Brandon, thank you, brother, for leading us. Grateful that you're all here. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If you don't know me, um, no worries. We can chat afterwards. And um, if you need to ask any hard questions, please uh, direct them to Michael. Um, but all jokes aside, um, really excited about today. Not only do we get to work through the scriptures together, um, but we are kicking off a new series, Treasuring Christ Through Isaiah. So we are going to work through the entire book in the next four weeks. Um, today we'll be here for another hour and a half. Um, so I'm just kidding. Uh, we have chosen a couple select passages from the book of Isaiah. Obviously, we cannot be exhaustive, but our hope, as Michael has mentioned, um, that amidst a very easy time of year to be very distracted, um, we hope that our, our time together on Sunday mornings will force us, um, hopefully, joyfully, force us uh, back to Christ, uh, to press in and rest in Christ, the peace, the reason of the season, all those fun cliches um, that oftentimes we overlook because we say them a lot, but yet they're absolutely true. So um, we're going to be in chapter 7 and 9. We're going to look at a, a three or four verses in chapter 7 and then about seven verses in chapter 9. But uh, by way of introduction, it's interesting, um, if you read any uh, scholars, a lot of them will actually put chapters 7 through 12 in the book of Isaiah together. Um, in fact, many of them will call this the book of Emmanuel. So we saw a reading, um, and, and we normally don't have readings that long. Don't worry, we won't do that all year long. But, but as Michael mentioned, it's easy to sometimes you know, zip through Scripture, especially a lot of these names, and be like, okay, like, what, what is really going on? Um, the names are important, right? Uh, one big reason of importance is the fact that it was a fulfillment of prophecy. The Scripture promised, starting in 2 Samuel and moving forward, which we'll look at some today, that the Messiah, the one that is promised, the coming king, the perfect one, would come through the Davidic line, the, the Davidic lineage. So literally what poor Kristen had to read to you was all the way down the line of David, all the way to Jesus. That, that what was told, foretold prior to the baby Jesus actually being born in Matthew or the account of Luke or wherever you read in the New Testament, that, that the prophecy was fulfilled, right? And so you see these promises given in chapter 7 and chapter 8. And so we'll look at some of chapter 7. And then in chapter 9 and 10, you see a fuller description of who this one's going to be, right, in, in, in 9 and 11. And it's actually quite incredible, some of the words that Isaiah spoke, because this is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years proud of the baby actually being born, um, which, which is really incredible. And so uh, what I want to do is I want to kind of put an umbrella over us um, uh, in, in the rain. Uh, but, but the umbrella idea here is to draw our minds, that this, these, these six chapters are to draw our minds or our attention to the fulfillment of the promise that was actually given to our first parents in, in the Garden of Eden. All the way back to Adam and Eve, a promise was given that from their lineage, all the way from Adam and Eve through David, all the way to Jesus, and everything in between, that, that, there were this, that this Savior would emerge that would crush the head of Satan, crush the head of, of the serpent, crush sin, and in the words of Derek Thomas, um, would be restoration for us, redemption, deliverance, right? So, so that's kind of the overall picture of, of chapter 7 uh, and, and into 9 and, and all the way into chapter 12. So what I'd like to do quickly, um, because... Sometimes I, I feel like I lack understanding here, and maybe you do, and if you're a history buff here today or a geography buff, this may uh, really excite you. If not, bear with me. But I think it, uh, a quick historical reconstruction of kind of what's going on um, in the day of Isaiah is going to be really helpful for us to interpret our passage today. So you should see behind me uh, a map of what 
the nation of Israel looked like during the days of Isaiah. So you can kind of refer to that as we work through it. Um, but the nation of Israel was really made up of the northern and southern kingdom, right? So you've got this northern kingdom who was Israel, and you've got this southern kingdom that's Judea. And um, by the way, they had not really been great friends throughout history. Um, in fact, it was quite a perilous history between the northern and southern kingdom, um, and, and it had not been good for the latter 200 years. Really, back to, all the way back to the King, King Jeroboam, things had been really fractured between the northern and southern kingdom. So when we get to our, our, the stage here in Isaiah, the, the northern kingdom, Israel, was quite um, uh, threatened by the, the rising power of, Judea, of Judah, the southern kingdom. Um, in, in fact, Judah had grown quite powerful under King Uzziah, which is the grandfather of the king that we'll look at um, here in chapter 7, Ahaz. And so they've become very powerful. And so you've got, you've got Israel a little worried about the southern kingdom. Okay, they're kind of strong. And if they really wanted to take us over, they could take us down. And then you've got this really impending menace called Assyria to the east. And if you were to look at the map, it's kind of like all down here, a big, huge kingdom. And so Israel's like, okay, Assyria could really take us down. And, you know, Judah's pretty strong. So let's kind of set up this NATO alliance. We're going to align with Aram, which is to the north, modern-day Syria. And we're going we're gonna to knock on the door of our southern kingdom, Judah, and say, hey, guys, let's, let's group up. Let's join together. Let's align so that we can protect ourselves, right? Sounds like a great idea. Judah basically says, and I'm paraphrasing the, 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 Chris, um, the, the Chris paraphrase, now nah, we don't want any part of that. N number one, they were kind of protected by some rolling hills and, and some water here, but, but they also felt like it might be a kind gesture to the, the, the nation of Assyria. Hey, look, we're not going to join this, this little alliance here. and maybe, maybe Assyria will see that and leave us alone, right? So Israel says, fine, here we come. So Israel and Aram team up together. They march upon the southern kingdom, and this is a really, really, really bad time. Um, you can read about this in 2 Chronicles 28. 120,000 or so Judean men were killed. Just shy of a quarter of a million women and children were exiled. It was a really bad time. Like, really, really bad time in the nation of Israel as a whole, but especially for the, for the southern kingdom, for Judah, right? And so Israel and Aram, or modern-day Syria, they march on the southern kingdom. And the goal of this time really was to try to overthrow King Ahaz, particularly, and put a more cooperative king in place. So, so here's King Ahaz, and we'll enter in today, in chapter 7 here. He's, he's got a real problem on his hands. His kingdom is about to fall to a greater power because they're joined together. So he cries out for help. But instead of crying out for help to the, to the Lord of Lords, to Yahweh, he cries out to the king of Assyria. So he goes to the king of Syria, and he sends all kinds of gifts to this king. And the king uh, duly noted not only the request of Judah, but also the weakness of Judah. So he comes to the aid of Judah, and honestly, Assyria marched on Iram, Israel, Judah, Philistia, which is down here, all the way down to the northern border of Egypt, eventually to the demise of Israel as a nation as a whole. So, so Israel, the northern kingdom, the Judah, the southern kingdom, basically become vassals to Israel. And, and that little decision, when Ahaz had, Ahaz had the opportunity to reach out for help, that little decision to reach out to the king of Assyria that, that was a really bad decision, and we'll kind of tease through this together. But, but the scriptures actually say in 2 Chronicles 28-25 <coughs> that this provoked God to anger. God was really angry at this point. It's like, I've been patient with you, and I'm giving you an opportunity to ask for help, and you're not doing it. 
So his decision here ultimately leads to much devastation. <coughs> and during these troubled times enters Isaiah, right? The Lord raises up a prophet, one of his major prophets, as we would look, as we would look at in the scriptures, who bravely speaks God's word, not just to a nation, but to a king who is piously and pridefully not listening to the Lord of Lords, right? And by the way, if you go back and read all of those names that Kristen read <coughs> to you this morning, Ahaz was there. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, into Hezekiah, on down to the Babylonian captivity, right? So let's read chapter 7, verses 10 through 14 together. And it says this, Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So the first thing I want you to notice is faith is absolutely essential. Your faith and whatever your faith is in is going to affect everything you do, say, and think. Whatever you place your faith in will in some way or some part control your life, right? If you have faith in your children, everything revolves around them. If you have faith in your spouse, everything revolves around them. If you have faith in your job, everything revolves around your job, right? So faith is absolutely essential. So look, look at verse 10. The Lord spoke through Isaiah. Remember, a prophet was a mouthpiece of God. He was speaking the word of the Lord to the king. And, and by the way, this was early in the war. So to kind of set the stage here, this was before Isaiah, excuse me, Ahaz had reached out to Assyria. So Isaiah is giving him an opportunity here early in the war before he makes the bad choice to, to, to reach out to God. In fact, what you'll see in just a minute is Isaiah is about to offer a chance for God's protection. I mean, the, the words literally say, ask a sign, ask. By the way, it's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Honestly, it seems as if he had asked. If he had asked for whatever, God would have granted it. Period. But we know that he didn't. For God is long-suffering and he's patient. A couple examples of this. You can look back in the, the book of Exodus, right? Moses, at that point, was appointed the leader to lead the nation of Israel. And, and literally, in a moment of faltering faith, the Lord is patient, and he gives him a sign. It's this unconsumed bush that is on fire. He, he, he was patient with Moses. He, what about my life, right? How often do I lack faith? How often do I take hope and faith in things other than the Lord? He's patient with me. And what about your life? Everything we say, do, and think. The Lord is, is continually patient with us. So he's patient with Ahaz. There has been this really recent past of not trusting the Lord, and he is giving him an opportunity to turn away from his sinful, pious, prideful self-reliance and trust in the Lord. And he says literally, ask anything as deep as Sheol or as high as the heaven. He did not listen. He was a wicked king. He didn't have faith. And therefore, because he did not have faith in the Lord, he didn't heed the words of Isaiah. 
Look at his response in verse 10. This is a really interesting response. I don't want you to miss it. Verse 12 says, But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. It's kind of an interesting response, really. And, and, and so why do I point this out? Number one, not only did he refuse to obey a command, as I mentioned, this was a command from God. He refused to obey what the Lord asked him to do. The Lord said, hey, ask me for a sign, right? So he refused to obey a command. Secondly, he piously turned down the help of the Lord, right? We understand that prior to faith in Christ, if you don't recognize that you need help, you will never come to, to faith in Christ. You just won't. If you think you can do it on your own, you'll never come to faith in Christ. So he refused to obey commands. He piously turned down the help of the Lord. But here's the kicker, really. He used the Lord's own words to justify his unbelief. It's like this slap in the face. He uses Deuteronomy 6.16, by the way. And in the context of Deuteronomy 6.16, basically what the Lord is saying, and once again I'm paraphrasing here, do not come to the Lord lacking faith and ask him to prove himself. Who are you, right? Who are we? Who am I? What is man, as the scriptures say? Don't come to the Lord lacking faith and ask him to prove himself. That's what Deuteronomy 6.16 is talking about. That's not at all what's going on here. In fact, asking for the sign was a command from the Lord, and it would have been a gracious confirmation of the Lord's word. In fact, when the Lord tells him to ask for this sign, he puts himself on the hook. The Lord does that many times, by the way, throughout the scriptures. He makes a promise. And so by, when, when, when you make a promise, by default, making a promise, you're putting yourself on the hook to fulfill it. Good news is the Lord is perfect. So when the Lord tells you to ask for a sign, he's putting himself on the hook to do it. It's interesting. I couldn't help but think about Christ in the wilderness. If you're familiar with the life of Christ, when he comes to earth... He has time in the wilderness where he's tempted. And, and the Lord can, can relate to all of us because he was tempted in every way, yet never sinned. So he's in the wilderness and Satan continually tempts him. And eventually the Lord uses this passage in Deuteronomy 6 to, to, to say or rightly accuse Satan of tempting him. But I want you to pay attention to what happens. Ahaz accused God of tempting him in essence. It's as if the Lord would ask Ahaz to do something that's sinful. Ahaz says, nah, I'm not going to obey. I don't need your help. And by the way, Lord, I'm not going to sin. You, you told me not to ask for a sign. He's literally using the Lord of Lords' words against him. Well, why do I point this out? Because I want you to understand where Ahaz's heart is. Not because I want you to think he's worse than you, because he's not, right? What I want you to see, I want you to see that Ahaz's heart, prior to knowing Christ, because we don't really know what happens in his life later, but, but prior to knowing Christ, all of our hearts respond like this. Lord, we're disobedient. We, we don't need your help. We've got this, right? And oftentimes we make some really ridiculous justifications as to why. So a side note here, just in case you're curious, the cause of this war was really the apostasy led by King Ahaz. Um, there, there's a prophecy that was given back in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, God made or entered into a covenant with David. And basically he says when anybody in the descendant line of David does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of man with floggings inflicted by men. We'll see in just a minute Assyria was that rod. 
God was still gracious. There still was a remnant. But Ahaz, in the midst of all this, 2 Chronicles 28, he made molten images for worship. He worshiped gods of Damascus. He shut the temple doors. He put out lamps and stopped the offerings of incense and sacrifices. Isaiah actually goes on to prophesy, if you look down in verse 17 of chapter 7, he goes on to prophesy, prior to it actually happening, that they will fall, Judah will fall to Assyria. See, faith is the issue, really. Back to our point. Faith is the issue, and it's absolutely essential. Because here's the deal. If Ahaz had faith in God, and he recognized that on his own strength he could not do what needed to be done, things would be different, right? That's where we find ourselves in the gospel. So Ahaz in his pride refuses to seek the Lord in faith. Look at verse 13 for the Lord's response. It says, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Isaiah is basically saying, okay, you, you're already wearying men. You're wearying me. I, I can almost hear, because of his disobedience, I, I can imagine the frustration of Isaiah, right? Here's Isaiah, probably fearfully yet bravely and boldly speaking to a king who's prideful. And he's like, dude, listen, man, you're going you're gonna to blow it here. You've got a real chance. You ever been in a situation like that with one of your friends or one of your loved ones or one of your family members? And they're not responding and you're just growing weary, right? But what you see here is not just the weariness of Isaiah. It's a divine exasperation in the words of some. He literally says, you are wearying God. You can look back at the history of Israel. Go back to Judges, for instance. If you don't know anything about the Old Testament, Judges is, is very interesting. Israel is walking along. Everything's going great. They're honoring the Lord, and then they decide to disobey. And what does God do? Instead of totally destroying them, he raises up a judge. The judge comes and rescues the day, and then everything's good again, and peace is there. And then what happens? They, they disobey again and find themselves in a really bad predicament, and then God raises up a judge and rescues them. And so the judge is really a foreshadowing of the ultimate judge who will be the redeemer, the deliverance in Christ. So the Lord has been long-suffering throughout the entire process. So Isaiah knows about all of this, right? Isaiah has faith in Christ, and he's looking at his nation, and he's saying, King Ahaz, you're going to blow it. But, but it's not just Ahaz. It's, it's God, and it's, it's a wider wearying. Israel has continued to lack faith, and they have continued to turn away from the Lord. And by the way, they have never produced a perfect king. And we can carry this into the New Testament, which we'll see in a minute. Nor have we. We continue to weary God, right? I love this quote by Alex Motler. He says, A whole history of human inadequacy suddenly passes before Isaiah's eyes. It's as if in this moment he's reminded of the continual disobedience of his nation, yet he's pleading for his king to trust by faith in Yahweh. It's like he's saying enough is enough. And what comes next, by the way, in verse 14, is the beginning revelation of the solution to this indignation, to this sinfulness, to the indifference of the Davidic kingdom of Israel. And, by the way, as Pastor Michael mentioned, for all of humanity. It's not just a solution for the remnant of Israel. It's a, it's a solution in the new covenant for all of those who would have faith and trust in Christ. Look at verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So he starts with this therefore or because of what has happened. The Lord himself, this is emphatic. The Lord's not doing something to, to send someone else in his place. The Lord himself will give you a sign. This is actually 
quite ironic. Because remember, just a minute ago, the Lord commanded Ahaz to ask for a sign, and he refused. The Lord's still going to give a sign, right? He says, here's the sign. A sign will be given. And he says, behold, listen, pay attention. He's commanding attention. The virgin shall conceive a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. So what's happening here? This sign is, is revealing God's future plans. We'll connect this to the New Testament in a second. But we see a promise of a child from a virgin. And the prediction, not just of Ahaz's reign, but really the reign of everyone but this king. We are given the name of the child in this verse, Emmanuel. God is with us is what it means. That's why we say that during this time of year. It's a promise of hope. It's a promise of an heir to the throne that will not only eventually, as I mentioned, replace Ahaz, but be the promised Messiah and the perfect king that has been told about all the way back to 2 Samuel. You know, it's funny, when we read the Gospels, it's, it's probably really easy to, to think, why did you guys not believe that Jesus was the Messiah? Well, well, think about it, right? Israel has been in this incredibly perilous historical time of war and tumultuous fighting and promise of a king. And so, honestly, a lot of the stumbling block for some of the Israelites in the New Testament to believe that Jesus was the Messiah was because they were expecting this warrior king on a horse with a sword. This king that was going to show up on the scene and kill everybody that came against Israel. As we know, that's not at all what happened. Christ flipped everything up on its head. And instead of taking things by force, like he really would be justified to do, when he touches the unrighteous, he makes them righteous. When he meets those that don't know him and lack faith, he gives them faith. It changes your life, right? And he doesn't do it by force. He does it by a patience that has just not been seen yet, right? So the expectation in the, in, in the Old Testament is very strong. 2 Samuel 7 starts it, and it's developed into the hope of a perfect king, which we'll really tease out in chapter 9 here. So um, the last thing I want to point out before we kick into chapter 9 is really this is a promise of grace uh, to those who believe in a confirmation of judgment. That's really the second point. Um, the, 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 the first piece of that is if you trust in Christ, if you turn to the Lord, if you turn away from your sin and trust in Christ, you will be delivered. But then there is a default truth. If you do not, you're doomed. There's this dividing line in the sand. The scripture is very clear. There's an exclusivity to Christ. If you do not know Christ, if you do not have faith in the one true God, you are doomed. So, it's this promise of grace, yet a confirmation of judgment for those who do not believe. Let's look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read uh, the first five verses, and then we'll read 6 and 7. Give you a second to get over there if it's not on the same page there. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them, light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden 
and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be, tur- will be burned as fuel for the fire. Our third point here is, is the gospel is light and deliverance, and we'll, we'll work through this together. The first thing the scriptures say here is there will be no gloom. So remember, this is in contrast of the Assyrian transgression. This is right in the midst of everything that's going on with Assyria just taking everybody out, right? So the darkness for Israel and Judah is almost complete physically, right? They're almost about to be taken over. Throughout all of the tumultuous time happening around them, in the midst of God's judgment, there is a promise for the remnant of God's people. Those who believe are a people of hope. You can look back in chapter 8, verses 11, 22, 11 through 22. It's really, really helpful to think through that. We didn't have time to get into that today, but there is this absolute trust and hope. I hear echoes, honestly, of 1 Peter. If you don't know anything about the New Testament, that's okay, too. 1 Peter is right around after Nero comes in and just totally wipes everybody out, does some incredibly terrible things to the church. But yet, what does Peter say? He doesn't say, oh, woe is you, let's sing King Baya and hold hands. Not to say that that's bad because my kids actually like that song. But, but all jokes aside, what Peter says is take hope. Hold fast. There is a surety in the promised one to come. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. You're, you're preserved and, and your promise is preserved in heaven and kept for you unfading you you hear echoes of this so when when we get to chapter 9 Isaiah really desires to paint an even clearer picture of what this glorious hope looks like in the midst of everything that's going on he paints a picture of what the hope looks like the hope is sure and in fact if you read it he writes it as if it's something that's already happened God's people know that that God is with them, Emmanuel, that was given to us in chapter 7, right? There should be a quote on the screen behind me. It says, For the remnant, beyond the darkness of the hidden face and the distressful pathways, the shining light of 9, 1 through 7, the future is written as something which has already happened. For it belonged to the prophetic consciousness of men like Isaiah to cast themselves forward in time, and then look back on the mighty acts of God, saying to us, look forward to it. It is certain. He has already done it. Because of this confidence, Isaiah can place the light of 9-1 in immediate proximity to the darkness of chapter 8, verse 22. Not because it will immediately happen, but because it is immediately evident to the eye of faith. Those walking in the darkness can see the light ahead and are sustained by hope. So this passage, really verses 1 through 5, is is a poetic passage. Um, It can be broken into two sections, the first of which is the hope described, and then we'll look at the second in just a minute. You find this in verses 1 through 3. So you see a major contrast, right? The contrast is between darkness and light. It's a pretty easy concept to understand. Things look really dim, but light overcomes. You know, as I drove to church this morning early, you know, I couldn't help but think, I don't know where all of you guys live, those of us in this room who have a relationship with Christ, but the Lord is, is, is really funny in a good way. He, he doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us. And so 
in every respective place that we live, he scatters us amongst the world. And so you may be the only believer on your street or one of the few believers in your school, especially in a place like Ann Arbor, and you may feel like you're overwhelmed with anxiety and, Lord, how can I make an impact? But yet the Lord is, is promising us a glorious hope that one day all things will be reckoned, but in the meantime, he wants to use us. And so because we have the eye of faith, we can impact the world around us for the kingdom. And so we're like these little beacons of light. Amy and I were riding through a, a neighborhood yesterday. There's probably 16 lots. If, 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 if there was a believer living in that little development, maybe they're the only believer amidst 16 houses, but they're a beacon of light. And no matter what's going on around them, they're preserved by God, and their inheritance is kept in heaven, and they're a beacon of light in the midst of darkness, right? The eye of faith has to be what drives us. So the hope described, you see a promised liberation and a victory, and the solution is what? It's the birth of a child. The actual birth announcement, by the way, starts in verse 2 here. It's kind of hard to see, but, but it says this. It, it says that it moves those who were walking in darkness to those who have and will see a great light and a hope of the future. In other words, the promise that is about to be further revealed is that there has to be a catalyst for this change. Like, what, what he's saying is going to happen has to have a catalyst and the catalyst is the Christ child. Verse 3 says, You have multiplied the nation and you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. Although the Lord brought about judgment through Assyria, he will gather them again and through them bring forth the Messiah that he has promised. There's always this remnant, this continued preserved hope through the long-suffering and the patience of the Lord of hosts. Secondly, the thing that I want you to see in this section is in verses 4 through 7. So we, we, we have the hope further explained. Verse 4 introduces the Lord's plan for deliverance. Look what he says. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. So you see this vocabulary of words like yoke and burdens and shoulders and oppressor. Honestly, to an Israelite, this would recall the days of the Exodus. All of these words were used in the midst of that, right? So they're in exile, and then they're marched out by this mighty leader. And in the midst of that, Pharaoh decides at the last minute, now I'm going to change my mind. He's running after them with the army, and God you know, spreads the Red Sea. It's this incredibly miraculous thing. And so when they hear these words, they're thinking about that, right? They're thinking upon the history of Israel and how the Lord has provided deliverance from them. But, but what I want you to pay attention also to is that this section should highlight that the victory is an absolute act of God. It removes all boasting from man. God did it. God is doing it. And God will do it. Apart from any man, the victory is the Lord's. And then verse 5 moves us to the fruit of the victory. Look, 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 look at what verse 5 says. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle to molt, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. So literally, right, in the midst of this crazy war, Isaiah is prophesying some really crazy stuff. He's saying the warriors 
will be absolutely brought to a halt. Given the incredible amount of death and blood-stained garments laying around, I'm sure, in many, many places, these things will be burnt and there will be peace and these things will be used for things like fire to cook food and to be warm and everything will be at rest. It's a very stark picture, by the way, of what's going on currently. This total destruction of the enemy, yet a bright future ahead. Once again, you can see why it may be difficult for some of these Israelites to believe that Jesus was the Messiah in the New Testament because they're looking for this warrior king that's going to do this, right? They don't quite understand it. We've got to have faith. Going back to point one, it's an essential piece of our relationship with Christ. Verse 6 then begins to describe and explain this king and his rule. Here we see our fourth and final point that Christ is the gospel. Christ is the good news. Look at verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So here we see some incredibly clear and descriptive words of the coming Savior. Honestly, these words are so clear and are so completely fulfilled in the New Testament that many scholars cannot hardly believe that Isaiah spoke them. Remember, this is hundreds of years prior to the actual birth of Christ. Since the revelation of the name Emmanuel in chapter 7, here we are given eight words or descriptive pieces to help build upon that. So we start with Emmanuel, and then we start up this track of a little more revelation, a little bit more of the mystery of the coming Savior is revealed to us. Two important ideas that we must not miss. Number one, I don't want you to miss the fact that there is a humanity piece, a fully God piece to this promised one, but coupled with this, there's this deity, this fully God piece, this divine piece. So fully God, fully man, really important to understand. Look at verse 6. You see words like child, born, and son. Our minds should immediately go to what's called the incarnation of Christ. It's a really big word, but that's okay. You can stick with me. Another way to say that is the manifestation of Christ or the revelation of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Romans 1, 3-4, the powerful Son of God, who was a descendant of David, yet divine. Romans 9, 5, Christ's physical descent came from the lineage of Israel. Philippians 2, 5-7, Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, so he took the form of a servant by taking on the likeness of humanity. Colossians 2, verse 9, the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. 1 John 4, 2, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and is from God. And then when you get to verses 6b through 7, you see his deity and his divine authority. Fully God, fully man, right? He's continually revealing to us who this Savior is. 
So let's do this. Let's step through the descriptive words or actions, if you will, of the Messiah together. We'll tease them out a little bit, and then I'll land the plane. We'll, we'll close in a summary and have some practical application. But look, look at verse 6. It says, The government shall be upon his shoulders. The promise of a new and perfectly righteous king from the Davidic line is in view here. So the prophecies fulfilled. All those names Kristen read to us. It has come to pass. Christ fulfills that. There is also this idea of what's called divine omnipotence. That's a big word again, but it's a characteristic of God. It means all-powerful. He is omnipotent. So you see this divine omnipotence coupled with divine holiness and a genuine patience for his people. Because you've got an all-powerful God who's fully God, fully man, who's holy and righteous, yet in the midst of our sin and our lack of faith and our pride, he produces a child that is the Christ child who will ultimately save us and deliver us from sin. Great quote I found studying this this week. It is an empire indeed, but there is no imperialism. There is rule, but no exploitation. Rather, the endless sharing of his own perfect fulfillment in bringing those under his rule to perfection. We'll see more description about his reign in verse 7. But this is the type of king that the government will sit upon the shoulders of. Secondly, it says in verse 6, he is a wonderful counselor. This is actually the first additional description of his name since Emmanuel in chapter 7, right? So it's, a, it's an actual name. It's not just an action of him, but it's an actual name. <coughs> wonderful counselor. In the Old Testament, the word wonder actually was generally attributed to the works of and wonders of God. Okay, so we use the word wonderful and awesome and a lot of those things about, you know, whatever we put them in into our normal language. But back in the Old Testament, the word wonder was generally attributed to the works of God. So when an Israelite would hear this, their minds would immediately go to miracles and wonders performed, like crossing the Red Sea, like the burning bush, right? Many, many things that happened historically. So this wonderful counselor who's not only going to do miraculous and wonderful deeds, but he's also a counselor that provides wisdom, right? That listens, meets us, that talks with us through his word and that listens to our talking, even if it's sometimes babbling and mere faithless, right? Derek Thomas says, his every instruction is wonderful. His opinions are extraordinary. His recommendations are impressive. His advice is phenomenal. He is the only one worth listening to in the history of the Old Testament, Solomon, David's son, whose name actually meant peaceful, had been in possession of this gift. But it was only a shadow of the wisdom that Christ possessed. Jesus, and not Solomon, is the wisdom of God. He's a wonderful counselor. Then he moves into this idea of mighty God. This expression is actually repeated in chapter 10. Um, we, we see it in places like Zephaniah. Uh, you know, he is mighty to save. You might know a song that would put your mind there. We see the divinity and the omnipotence, the all-powerfulness of the child highlighted here. He's mighty to save. He's the one with the Father, John 10, 30. And his glory is unprecedented and full of grace and truth, John 1. He's a God like no one has ever seen. No matter how mighty any king prior to this king has been, 
He's the mightiest. Mighty God. Mighty to save. The only one able. And then he moves to everlasting Father. The literal rendering of this is the Father of Eternity. I really like that. Eternity, past, present, and future. The Father of Eternity. Everlasting Father. His rule knows no end. It is everlasting. It will bring peace that not only surpasses all understanding, Philippians, but will continue infinitely. And by the way, he's a perfect father. I I don't know all of you in this room. I don't know what your interaction was like with your father. Um, Some good, some bad. Here's the beauty of the gospel displayed in, in the fatherhood, right? He is a He's a perfect father, regardless of your experience with your earthly father. And the beauty is, he's a perfect father for you, yet he is mighty to save even a father that may not have been the greatest to those who were his children, right? It's this incredible picture of an everlasting father. His reign never ends, yet he fulfills all of the insignificant and or significant details that fathers all over the world, including myself, fail to live out. Every day I look at my life as a father and I think, man, I failed today. I really failed today. But God, he's mighty to save. And good news for my children, he's an everlasting, perfect, and infinite father. That will be the, That is and will be the full description and example of what a father should be like. He moves down to Prince of Peace. The word here for prince is the same word that is often translated as commander in Joshua. In fact, if you know anything about the story of Joshua, he's actually, he has a vision sitting beneath the, the walls of Jericho. Um, and and this, this word is used as uh, commander here. Uh, so uh, another way to, to render this, some scholars would say, would be the commander of peace. Nothing can come against his peacefulness. Nothing. It doesn't matter what's going on or what you think you know or what you think someone else knows. He is the Prince of Peace, the Commander of Peace. Isaiah actually refers to this aspect of the Messiah many times. I'm not sure if I put it in the slide deck, Isaiah 57, 15, and 19. Maybe I did. Um, That's okay, but I'll read it to you. Good news. Uh, So this is what verse 15 says. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. Luke 2, we'll see some of this throughout the Advent. When the angels witnessed the fulfillment of the prophecy when Christ was born, what did they say? They burst into song and we sing it. Throughout this season, they exclaimed, peace on those to whom he is pleased with. Peace on earth. Goodwill towards men. Jesus promised peace to his disciples when he was leaving. Think about it. These disciples were walking with Jesus. They had given everything up 
to follow him. They have watched him do miracles upon miracles upon miracles. And they believed with all their heart, even amidst their sin and sometimes faithlessness, they believed that this was the Messiah. And Jesus says, I'm going to die. And they're like, wait, what? What do you mean? And he looks at them and he says, peace. Peace. I promise you peace. What are you talking about, Jesus? I don't understand. But he promises peace. And then when Jesus rose from the grave, John 20, 19, he greeted them. And guess what he said? Peace be with you. He's the prince of peace. He's the commander of peace. The peace that Christ brings is almost unfathomable, right? Yet he's promised to those who trust in him. It's interesting. This peace is tangible now, but it will be fully realized in the future, right? It's tangible now. How is it tangible now, Chris? You don't understand what I'm going through. You don't understand what my marriage is like. You don't understand what my family's doing. In fact, I just got back from being with them over Thanksgiving. I can't stand them. You don't understand what my father is like. You don't understand how my children are. You don't understand my financial situation. You don't understand what I've done in the past. Here's how God's peace is tangible. He says, anything you've done or will do, I will forgive if you'll turn to me in faith. And anything that anyone in your life has done to you and ultimately against me, I can forgive. And what you can count on is if you will trust in me and come to me with a broken and a contrite heart, a heart of humility and a heart of seeking God for help over anybody else, I'll give you peace and rest. And that peace and rest may not look like the job you want. It may not look like a perfect child. It may not look like an immediately or ever restored relationship with an earthly person. But man, it'll be tangible and it'll be real. We try to seek peace in so many things. People and money and cars and jobs. None of it is real. But the peace that Christ promises as the prince and the commander of peace is sure. And it is true rest. There is no end to his reign of peace. Verse 7, look what it says. No end. The reign of peace will never come to an end. There's no more wondering. There's no more praying and hoping that the next dynasty, the next king, the next leader will, will pursue the Lord and his righteousness. Even the political situation in our country, like, yes, vote. If you don't vote, I'll tell you to go vote. I don't really care what your political stance is, but I'll tell you this much. If you're placing your hope in a president, you've missed it. Because the Prince of Peace surpasses all of that. He places people in power and removes people in power. And nothing that goes on around us tangibly ever shakes him. There's no more wondering. I, I used to say, I was a youth pastor years ago, and uh, I used to tell them that this, this hope, it's not like, oh man, I really hope mom brings pizza home tonight, you know, like really hungry and I don't want this again. You know, it's not that kind of hope. It's this eternal hope. It's this knowledge that it's going to happen. And because we know, sure, that it's going to happen, we can have hope and peace and rest now. Look what verse 7 continues to say. His throne will be established and upheld by justice and righteousness. It's interesting because there have been so many kings historically, and even in the midst of what's going on, by the way, with Ahaz, the king is not just and he is not righteous. And we can point out many, many ways that everybody else around us, and if we're honest, ourselves are not just and righteous, right? In thought, action, and deed. 
But the scriptures say that he's just and righteous. What does that mean? We should see Christ himself in the midst of this. Number one, he was just because he had to punish sin. If I've given you this example before, forgive me, but it's a good one, I think. If it's not, come tell me afterwards. Actually, tell Michael. He can tell me. Um, but, but he's just because Christ knew that sin had to be punished. So here's a tangible example for you. What if someone had brutally murdered someone in your family? Terrible thing. And that person's called before the judge. And this judge, man, he's been working all day. And this happens to be the last case on his docket for the afternoon. And his wife's making his favorite meal. And he's not feeling that well. And he's hungry. And he's tired. And this criminal that's murdered your family comes before this judge and says, I'm here. And the judge says, ah, you're forgiven. Get out of here. Because he wants to leave and go home. You'd be outraged, right? And furthermore, that judge would not be just. He would be an unrighteous judge. Christ knew in order to fulfill perfection, which he did, that he had to punish sin to be considered just. So what did he do? He poured his wrath out on the Son. He fulfilled justice by crucifying his most prized possession. But furthermore, he's righteous. Why does this matter? Because if Christ was not perfect, he could not die for all of humanity. It would be no different than you putting me on a cross and crucifying me. I can't save you. I've broken the law just like you. I've sinned against the Lord many times. And we'll do it again and again. Christ never sinned. God was just and he was righteous. He justly carried out his wrath upon the Son. And he's righteous because the perfection had to be there. To die for the sins of all humanity. So you should see this idea of propitiation. There's another word. I used to joke and say that was the first word my child learned. Uh, it's not really. Um, but propitiation, it's a big theological word that means atonement or appeasement, right? He carried out the wrath on the Son, the perfect Son. And for all those who believe will have everlasting life in Christ. In the death and resurrection, we find life and life everlasting. And then lastly, verse 7, the Lord of hosts himself will do this. He did not send a replacement. He did not send an angel. We've already walked through how he couldn't have yet carried out what needed to be done himself for our sinful souls to find redemption, forgiveness, peace, and rest. So, so here we have it. Here's the birth of a son foretold in the book of Isaiah, more fully manifested in the New Testament as we continue to walk through this passage, a child, fully God, fully man, that died on our behalf amidst the continual sin and disbelief, not just of Israel, but for those of us as well, who would be considered a part of the new covenant if you trust in Christ by faith. Knowing all that we think, we do, and we say, past, present, and future, yet still chose to die on our behalf. Here's the application. First question I would have, and this is a stark question. I don't mean to be offensive, but... The scriptures ask this of us many times. Have you responded in faith to the Messiah or with rejection to him? Do you find yourself in the camp of Isaiah or the camp of Ahaz? Not because of who they are or what they did or when they lived or what was going around them, but the attitude of their heart. Do you find your heart in a place where Isaiah find, finds his? And that is faith in Christ. Or do you find it in a place of lacking faith? in God and seeking deliverance on your own behalf and own strength. Number two, if you're a Christian, are you trusting deeply in Christ no matter what 
the surrounding circumstances. During this season, it can be a great time, an exciting time, a very endearing time, or it can be a real challenging time. A lot of times it's the first holiday, Christmas, without someone. After a messy divorce, a death, a sickness that's been announced. You find yourself trusting and pressing into Christ and treasuring Christ in the circumstances that you're placed in. I hope, I pray with all my heart that us working through Isaiah will help you do that as a, as a church. Thirdly, this, this really impacted me, so I threw it out there. Uh, are there any specific characteristics of Christ that we are doubting today? What do I mean by that? As, as you work through things like Prince of Peace and Everlasting Father and, and uh, Mighty God and Wonderful Counselor, is there any part of that that you're struggling to just really trust in? Like for me, as I, as I thought through this last night and prayed through it, I thought, you know, most of the time, I'm not, I'm not questioning that I can go to God and talk to him as a wonderful counselor. And, and you know, most of the time I seek him for, for, you know, being mighty because he can do things that I can't do. But, you know, I, I feel like this time of year especially, I find myself not trusting that he's the Prince of Peace. How quickly and how often I can find myself spun out in anxiety because of my surrounding circumstances. Are you trusting in the characteristics of God that are revealed to us through Isaiah? That he is the embodiment and the perfection of all of these descriptive words that Isaiah gives us. If not, may we confess and repent of that. And then lastly, as a body of Treasuring Christ Church, as the body of Christ, I pray that we leave here today seeking to treasure Christ more in the midst of the Christmas season and all of its perceptible distractions. It's really easy to miss what's really important. We've given you some resources via the email and a couple other ways of some recommendations on how to work through Advent. If you need that information, please come see us afterwards. We can help you do that. I know as a family and as Michael, their family and a number of families in there, we actually do the Advent as a family. So tonight we'll begin by with the wreath and the main candle, we'll light a candle, we'll read the story, and we actually sing a song. There's a little devotion we do with our kids. It's a really special time for us. We do it every Sunday throughout the Advent season. I'm not saying you have to do that, but it is a recommendation. But, but here's my challenge to you. Whatever this looks like for you personally, I pray that you leave here today thinking about tangible ways that you can better seek and press into Christ throughout the Christmas season because it's really easy to be distracted for what is really happening. That being said, let's pray, and then we'll finish our time of worship through song.